On the last episode of The Nexus. Purely from a business logic point of view, stories work. Veteran storyteller Steve Pratt talked about storytelling in the workplace, and in particular, its power to provide clarity, lasting understanding, and even brand lift both internally as well as externally. And now, we're going to dig deeper into why stories have that power, and the person we've invited to grab a shovel and dig deep with us is this man. Very often, the feeling is more important than the content The meaning of the communication is the response you get. That's Dr. Peter Jensen, sports psychologist, performance coach, and founder of Third Factor, one of the most preeminent performance coaching agencies in North America. Dr. Jensen's worked with some of the world's top CEOs, pro sports franchises, and more Olympic athletes than we have time to name on this podcast. And he tells them all the same thing. Emotion and imagination change people. According to Dr. Jensen, if you want to inspire better performance, the kind that leads to the outcomes you seek, you just need to do one thing. And one of the single best ways to get at that one thing is through storytelling. Now, do you want to know what that one thing is? Well, then you should probably listen. Dr. Peter Jensen joins us at the Nexus. Now, Peter, I have been fortunate enough to receive coaching from your firm, Third Factor. And during that coaching, I watched a video where you said something provocative that's been living with me and feels especially relevant in light of our focus on storytelling. What you said was this, logic changes no one. What did you mean by that? Well, I mean, that's a pretty bold statement, and I would probably revise it today to say logic rarely changes anyone. (laughs) (laughs) If logic changed people, no one would smoke, everybody would exercise, everybody would eat healthy. The fact of the matter is that emotion and imagination change people, uh, not logic. And I was fortunate enough to study under an incredible human being named Kazimir Dombrowski. And he founded a theory called the theory of positive disintegration. Negative disintegration would be mental illness, but positive disintegration occurs when an individual harnesses the resources within themselves to transcend what's going on right now. Okay, um, I see where you're going with this, that there's something beyond logic or immutable characteristics that drives people to change in a positive way. You know, nature and nurture are always, that's a big argument in the social sciences. Are great leaders born or are they developed? Dabrowski said they're missing the point. The point is there's a third factor, and that's the role a person plays in their own growth and development. The very right to be human is denied every day to hundreds of millions of people as a result of poverty. If you look at Nelson Mandela, for example, when he went into prison on Robben Island, he didn't get better parenting, he didn't get different genetics, but he came out a free man, not just free of the bars, but free of anger, hostility, resentment. So who developed Nelson Mandela? Well, Nelson Mandela did. So beyond logic, beyond nature, beyond nurture, there is a critical element that people sometimes overlook. I'd love to know, A, What's that critical element? And B, who isn't overlooking it? Now, in my laboratory, which is sport, the great thing about coaches in sport is they don't fear emotion. 
they recognize it for what it is. It's a way to develop people. It's a way to help people get better. And so when people have a disappointment or a setback or a failure, you know, one of the things I ask them is, what are they going to do with their disappointment? Like, where are they going to put it? Where are the voices in our head coming from? Really, they don't just fall out of the sky. There's a layering process here. First of all, there's the things we tell ourselves. I can't do this. This isn't possible. Then there's another layer. That layer is imagery, imagination. Because the minute you start to imagine something, the physiology comes. That's what creates the emotion. You see, under every single emotion is energy. I don't care if the emotion is shame or sorrow or excited or competitive or whatever it is. And it's where you're going to put that. And that's the way change starts. Now, that's the push. But there's also the pull. You see, the pull is imagination. Where are you going? Well, how will it feel when you resolve this and you move forward and you feel like you're running again? Oh my God, that'll feel such a relief, etc. And so it's those two working in tandem. Essentially, you're saying emotion, even more than logic, is the fuel in everyone's tank. And we should think of imagination as the ignition. Oh, yes. Oh, gosh, yeah. Now, let me bring this back to the corporate world. When I'm working with a group, it's things like mergers or you're changing your SAP. There's some uncertainty, etc. And I will ask leaders, what are people imagining right now? Oh, they're thinking because we're bringing in this other client, the job may be in jeopardy, etc., etc. And I say, and how is that making them feel? Oh, well, they're feeling worried, doubtful. And then I go to them, yeah. What is the truth? Well, the truth is we're not letting anybody go. That's why we're bringing this group in. All right. So how do you want them to feel? We want them to feel excited. We want them to feel motivated. We want them. All right. What images need to go into your communication with these people so that they can start to imagine that? Because back to my earlier comment, that's when the feelings will come, right? Right. And so there's a diagnostic and then there's an application. There's always more to it than just a simple sentence. You know, logic rarely changes others. But good leaders understand the power of emotion and imagination in helping people change. Because emotion drives things. Peter, you mentioned business leaders and the need for them to think about it more consciously. I'd love to hear your thoughts on why you think it is they don't do it, or when they do do it, they do it badly. Well, (laughs) how many days do we have? (laughs) Imagery is the language of performance. Your body doesn't speak English. And so the way I talk to business leaders and sports people about it is I say to them, who are the people who most want to influence you? And that's pretty simple. It's advertisers. It's marketers, right? And then I'll say, what language do they speak? Well, they speak imagery. Because imagery is not necessarily pictures. It's mm-hmm. all of the senses. I, I don't yeah. like the word visualization because it implies it should be visual. Very often the feeling is more important than the visual component of it. Yo-Yo Ma, the concert cellist, calls imagery the forgotten language of our youth. He's absolutely right. But the fact of the matter is, you need to learn to translate and to help other people translate. The way you're talking about this, Peter, and we talk about business leaders and either their inability or reluctance to sort of invoke this, even though they see it elsewhere, 
I wonder if a part of it doesn't have to do with the fact that they feel like doing something like that is not something that they can control. And yet your evidence that doing exactly what you're talking about can produce predictable, reliable outcomes. Would you say that's accurate? If you're a leader anywhere, what are you trying to do? You're trying to build self-awareness and self-responsibility in other people. You can call it engagement, you can call it commitment, you can call it whatever you want, but at the person level, it's self-awareness and self-responsibility. Suddenly I take a role in getting better. And the idea, of course, in any leadership position is to put yourself out of work. You know, you don't stake the tree its entire life. And one of the reasons that I really push leaders to ask more questions is because when you tell them, they listen. But you don't know what image you've created in their head. You have no idea. You may have said to them, I want you to build better rapport. Is that going to help build better rapport? Of course not. It's like a golf pro standing behind you yelling, hit it further. It's not imaginable. What does rapport look like? I want you to make eye contact more frequently. I want you to nod, to let the person know you respond. I want you to summarize what you hear them saying. Now we're getting there because now we're engaging the imagination, right? Right. And so when you get very good at asking questions, of course, people think, how do you think you'd proceed in that meeting? As a leader, you get a glimpse inside their head. You get a glimpse of their recipe. And you may look at that recipe and go, ooh, it's missing a few spots. And it's very frustrating for leaders at first. Imagery, how do you provoke imagery? To me, the most obvious way is storytelling. Getting people to embrace storytelling as a business function. What do you think? No question about it. I mean, Chris, that's what people remember. I'll have people come up to me, and I'm not making this up in airports, on the streets sometimes. Oh, I attended a leadership program at Queen's 20 years ago, and I'll never forget you told this story. That's how they remember the concept because the story is an image in and of itself. And storytelling, some people are a lot better at it than others. But the fact of the matter is, we can all get a lot better at it. And it sticks. How do you motivate business leaders who are skeptical about the power of storytelling in their own business to try and apply it? Is it as simple as telling a story or do you need to back it up with metrics? Do you need to validate it to them? Sports people don't do things that don't produce results. Like if it doesn't work, it's gone. We know for a fact that imagery works. It's easy to back it up with all kinds of proof because you can't do things you can't imagine. I mean, you can't get up and walk out of a room without running imagery. That, it controls the timing and the sequence of all your movement patterns. I jokingly tell leaders, you know, when it, especially when I'm doing resiliency training with them, I'll say, you know, I could have come in here, uh, you know, 30 years ago and, and said, hey, I got this great group of skills that Buddhist monks are using. And you would have went, oh, yeah, okay, yeah, no, 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 thanks. I come in and say, here's what the best athletes in the world are doing. Here's what the great coaches are doing. Y'all listen. <laughs> right? yeah. Same skills. The skills are like the laws of physics. This is not new. Until you communicate in verbs, it's very hard for people to imagine things. To take a concept and translate it into actions and habits, that's imagery. Peter, I feel like there is this growing interest or fascination with or understanding about the need for people to tell better stories in the workplace. 
some of these teams are out ahead of their leaders in terms of what they need. Do you see that? Oh, yeah, well, often. I remember one time I'd done a whole pile of work on resiliency with a very large organization. And so the CEO had me in and he said, well, what do you think we should do next? And I said, well, some leadership pieces. And he said, what? Have you got any really good leaders? And he said, well, yeah. I said, well, hold it. Have you got leaders that no matter where you put them, productivity goes up, a sense of humor goes up, enthusiasm goes up, results go up. He said, yeah, we have a few of those. I wish we had more. And I said, you know what? Figure out what they're doing. Because whatever they're doing, that's what you need to do more of. And I'll bet you they're coaching. And I'll bet you they're telling stories. And I bet you they're creating in this other person the desire to get better. And that's what great leaders do. You know, Robert Frost, the American poet, once said of a great leader, they often see things in us that we do not yet see in ourselves. And this is the part of his quote I love. So they lend us the belief they have in us to us, so we have a belief that we can use while we're busy developing one of our own. It's just one of those things you hear and you go, yeah, you can feel that. I want to thank you so much for making time to chat with us. This was such a delight. No, no, my pleasure, my pleasure. On our next episode about storytelling in the workplace. We have this biological endowment that allows us to mirror and imitate others. Storytelling hitches a ride on that. We've told you where storytelling works, why it works, and now we're going to tell you how. And to do that, we're taking you to school. My work is on narrative empathy. That is Dr. Suzanne Keen, president of Scripps College in California, preeminent literary scholar, and a leader in the study of the effect of stories on humans. Narrative empathy is the version of empathy that we feel when we're sharing a story. Suzanne joins us on the next episode of The Nexus. You know, while we're speaking of stories, let me tell you one. We hear from a lot of people, including business leaders, who say they want to make storytelling part of their business, yet they have no idea how to do that. Well, at Nexus, we're not about telling you what you need to do. We're all about showing you how to do it, especially with storytelling. And it's something we've been doing for a quarter century. In fact, we've done it successfully for other clients, and I'm feeling pretty good about the fact that we can do it for you. All you need to do is reach out. Find us at nexuscommunications.com. That's N-E-X-U-S communications.com. Now, if you like what you've heard today, then why not use that emotion to provoke someone's imagination and get them to dig our podcast as much as you do? Rate or comment about us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you indulge your podcasting id. The Nexus is produced by Alexa Paveo, and it is hosted by me. I am Chris Nelson, and I thank you for listening. <laughs>